Hi, Rich. Um, welcome to the Bogusaw Skin Co. podcast. Um, so I first wanted to give some background to the listeners because we have not met each other. We don't actually know each other at all. But about a decade ago, maybe eight years ago, I listened to you speak at Net Profit in Cape Town and was blown away by how well you spoke, your energy, and how impressive you were. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Great. Well, thanks for having me. My name is Richard Mulholland. I am an entrepreneur. I started a presentation company 23 years ago when I was 22 and have since branched into different businesses, but also as a professional speaker. So I've been speaking professionally for the last 17 years and globally for the last three. And But you, you kicked off your career in rock and roll, right? Yeah, I started out, I was a roadie. I toured with bands uh, as a lighting designer. Uh, well, first of all, as a lighting technician, then a lighting designer and operator. The problem was that uh, in South Africa, we didn't really get work in winter. And uh, uh, we all kind of had to sit around doing nothing. So I went to my boss and I started a conference division where we would go and we would sell our lighting and staging to corporates. What I realized very quickly there, though, was that it didn't matter how good the lighting sound in AV was if the presenter was bad. And I realized the real gap worth, uh, or the real uh, gap worth filling was the gap in presentation skills. So I started Missing Link. And I actually still worked for Gearhouse for about six months in the interim while I'd kind of started it in the evenings. And we had five employees eventually. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm onto something here. I should quit and uh, join Missing Link full time. Yeah, well, you're very, very good. Um, from watching your videos, the content you put out and the way you present yourself, something that comes across so clearly to me, I don't know if it does to other people, is that you seem to subscribe to the Gary Vaynerchuk marketing yourself philosophy. Is that correct? Nothing could be further a- from the truth. I cannot Sorry? stand. Nothing could be further from the truth. Are you like, serious? I, I cannot stand him. I cannot stand how he comes across. I detest it immensely. Yeah, I and in fact... That- Gary Vaynerchuk vibe from you. That's so interesting. I thought you were going to say yes to this. No, no, no. So I really, really, I find him garish. I find him, he promotes this kind of hustle porn. I, I, you know, everybody has to watch and come along and this is me at a meeting and look how cool I am. I I find when I listen to a podcast with him in it, I I genuinely get irritated. I'm like, just shut up. Uh, And one of the biggest anxieties I have is the, the anxiety between understanding the need to do some degree of promotion. But even then, the content I put out is as has as little self-promotion as possible. I can't even bring myself to say like and subscribe in my videos to the point that my staff started adding things on at the end. And I'm so inconsistent with it because every single time I create a video, I have to prove to myself, like, am I actually offering value in the world here? Or am I just adding to the noise in the world for the purpose of marketing? And I can't bring myself to do it. In fact, most of the posts that I do, I've now I've worked with a, a, a lady who kind of helps me create the content because I understand that I need to get work in order to put uh, food on the table. But I, I hate everything about it. I, I detest every part of the self-promotion culture that we live in. And uh, I, I just can't see anything positive about it. And it frustrates me immensely that I have to be part of it. But again... Uh, there are school fees to to pay and <laughs> a life to live. 
But your videos are phenomenal. I saw, I think we have someone mutual could like on one of them. I saw on LinkedIn where you talk about the extras in your life. And that really, it's it's such an obvious concept. Be nice to people. (laughs) Um, I I shouldn't be watching anyone to be teaching me this. And yet that really resonated. And I think quite a lot of people liked that and commented on that. Do you know which video I'm referring to? Um, not Not offhand. Which one was it? The one you talked about, be nice to the extras in your life. Oh, of course. Right. Absolutely. And to the people around you and the people with the invisibles, the people that you don't see every day. Uh, we, We forget that, yeah, we are the heroes in our own lives. And we sometimes forget that in everybody's life, if you are the hero, there are other people who are the the co-cast and uh, they are, you know, then there's the extras and all of those people. However, in their life, they're the hero. In their life, they're the star. And we sometimes forget that and we treat people indifferently. Uh, the example I gave is, uh, you know, like maybe car guards or uh, homeless people or the people at the airport who are trying to offer you a, you know, a, or to a the taxi. Marketers. I used to be so rude to telemarketers because it's like, oh, my God, they're annoying me. And now after literally after watching a video, the next day someone phoned me and I made him laugh. I said no, but I made him laugh. And then I, and that felt so much better. Mariana, yeah. that to me is the key, is I'm not suggesting for a single second that people need to now sit there and say yes to all the telemarketers, but just to understand that somebody's sitting there reading from a script, hating their life, uh, you know, from how rude they're treated all, or rudely they're treated all day. And just the fact that you stopped and took some time, and you were already on the call, to be intentional about making people smile and laugh is uh, incredible. And then, you know, you've just filled their tank a little bit. You've maybe bought them another five no's before they got to somebody else who was nice with them. And filling people's tanks should be what we're trying to do, not just fill our own. I agree. Okay, I want to get to the speaker. You're a professional speaker. So there's an old statistic that I read a long time ago, but stayed with me because I, I fall into that category. 70% of people fear public speaking more than they fear death. You're obviously not one of them. Um, I am. A lot of people are. Well, nobody really, everyone, no, nobody really is. Because if I asked you right now, do a presentation or I'll okay. kill you, you would do the presentation. exaggeration, yes, but it feels like that. So, yes, in reality, but it does feel like that. For everyone who is in that category, how should they be overcoming this? Well, so practice is the answer. Uh, first of all, I think it's very, very important. I was speaking to my son the other day, and my son is a great public speaker. He's 17 now, but he wants to be an astrophysicist. And so he stopped focusing on his speaking. And I said, you know, Bacal, you need to keep this up. And he said, but why, Dad? I want to be a physicist. And my answer to him was that a physicist who can communicate will always have an advantage over a physicist who can't. Uh, So I think it's important that we all understand that we have to be able to stand up in front of people and share a message. That could be, by the way, just um, in a a meeting with three uh, three other people in a boardroom where you're presenting an idea or presenting your company or sharing some thoughts or just speaking up. But we need to be comfortable and confident in doing that, and we're not. Now, if you think about how nervous, I've never skydived, and my cousin has done thousands, literally thousands of, of jumps. Now, the nerves, if I even think about skydiving, the amount of fear I have for it is so incredibly large that the chance of me doing it once feels you know, horrific. However, I reckon that my cousin, the first time he probably felt that fear, but excitement, The second time, a little bit less fear. The third time, a little bit less uh, fear. And I guarantee you that now he just feels prepared. There's zero fear. He's excited the whole way. And that's how I feel about getting onto a stage. People say to me, do you still get scared? Uh, I was interviewed in a podcast recently. They said to me, you know, I'm sure you do. Hey, do you still get scared before every talk? 
And not to be an idiot in any, in any way, but absolutely not. I, I prepare my work. I get my content. And honestly, I'm on a phone call two seconds before I get on the stage. I play my favorite playlist on the drive there. And then I get up onto stage and I do my job because I'm prepared. But that also comes with years of experience and practice. So to answer your question, practice. Put yourself in a position in which you're speaking to people. But the most important thing for me is practice when it doesn't matter so you're good when it does. If you think that at some stage in your career, you're going to have to stand up at a big industry event and deliver a presentation, then start delivering presentations to the team at your office on any topic you like. Three tips for being more productive, you know, and do a presentation to your team there. If you said to, if you work for somebody and you said to your boss, hey, I want to do a presentation on five ways that we can use Slack better. Um, would you be okay with that? They would say yes. And then you stand up and you deliver that presentation. And a month later, you come back and you do another one on Zoom calls. And a month later, you come and do something else on three great podcasts that we should all be listening to. By the time that you have got through those three presentations, if you then have to get onto a stage the next day and deliver a presentation to 500 people, it will feel a whole lot less scary. And that's what we need to do. We need to practice in private or practice when it doesn't matter so that we're good when it does. Don't wait until Um, the first time you're presenting is the time that matters the most. Okay, so practice, which is something that happens over years or months, is a little bit different than rehearsing a specific speech. Now, to me, yes, rehearsing is almost counterproductive because the more I rehearse, this could be just me, a specific speech, the more nervous I start to feel. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, so I think rehearsal is very, very important, but only enough. So if I'm preparing some material, so we always say to people, in fact, in my book, I talk about this as well, rehearse in the car. When you rehearse in the car, you can't go for perfection. You can just try and string together a sentence. You can't read a script. You can't look at your slides. You can just kind of go through and say, okay, I remember I want to get from slide A or topic A to topic B. How am I going to, oh, I want to tell the story about Murphy, my dog, and the peanut butter and the pill. So I start telling that story to myself while I'm riding my motorcycle, and I'll just be saying it out loud, getting comfortable with the words. And sometimes I'm like, ah, that doesn't work so well. I don't like the way I transitioned there. And I kind of give it some thought, and I, and I, I eventually land it the way I would like. Now, this is very, very different from rehearsing until the point that you're uh, reading lines like an actor. You see, an actor has to deliver a line perfectly. You have to deliver a point somewhat well. It's a very, very different thing. And sometimes when people over-rehearse, they get caught up in the idea of the words they are using, not the point that they are making. And all that matters is the point. Also, your audience self-corrects. If I make a mistake in a word, which I do all the time, I often don't bother going back and get fussed and say, I'm so sorry, what I meant to say was this. And sorry, sorry, sorry. Because the audience picks up. They do the heavy lifting. They work out what they think I wanted to say, and they use those words instead. Okay, that's really good. Um, humor in presenting. You are funny. Well, from what I remember <laughs> from your presentation, I'm not funny. So in every, and I actually get paid to speak quite a bit also, but in every speech that I do, I stay away from being funny. Instead, I like to use emotion because I'm scared of being boring. So I folk, I choose emotion. <laughs> so either make them cry or make them feel something. How would you approach humor in presenting if you're not a funny person? Like okay, well, I think you've your approach intuitively or for whatever reason is 100% spot on. The answer is, should I use jokes in my presentation? Are you naturally funny? No. Then no. 
right? It's like if you, I like making people laugh at home with my family. I like naturally enjoy trying to be entertaining. My father is a great storyteller. He loves, you know, he can captivate the whole room and tell cool stories and everybody's laughing and having a great time. Well, this is something that I enjoy doing. However, what I don't do, I occasionally know that I have certain energy points or I want to get and I have certain content that I know is amusing. So I put it at those points. However, all I'm trying to do is to make an emotional break in the audience. I'm trying to move the needle, take them from state A to state B. Humor is my tool. For other people, that is emotion. You see, the opposite of boring isn't crazy. The opposite of boring is interesting. And interesting can take many forms. In fact, humor is often a bit of a cheap trick. And as I grow as a speaker, I'm mindful of not preparing for humor and letting it kind of just filter in naturally where it works. And the audience picks up on that because it feels like it's something that just came up ah, off the fly because somebody in the audience did something. And that gives me my chance to surprise and delight the audience. Whereas I want my content to resonate. So I want to feel that my content is good enough to survive without me um, inserting humor. And if it's not, then uh, I need you... to question why it's there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think I, I like that. Uh, as long as you're not boring, that's an interesting, that's really, really important. Uh, you recently had a bit of a debate on Twitter about PowerPoint. Uh, you even mentioned Malcolm Gladwell and his lack of use of imagery. Yes. Um, so I myself have used PowerPoint, but I've also used Prezi. Um, can you summarize some of your thoughts on that? Sure. Okay, so the first thing is the person that I was debating with is essentially not debating PowerPoint. They're debating visual aids. They're not suggesting Prezi or other tools. They're suggesting no tool whatsoever. Nothing. You're right. Right. So for me on the PowerPoint versus Prezi, we were the world's first commercial user, uh, to the best of my knowledge, of Prezi, and we won the world's best Prezi competition thrown by Prezi, the global best template. We understand Prezi as a tool. However, there are times to use it. The reason we avoid it for the most part is people think I have a boring presentation. Let me make the transitions exciting to make it not boring. And I say that, hold on a second, you've skipped the fundamental. First, let's start with the basics. Don't get fancy until you got the fundamentals right. So build a decent foundation on your, of your presentation. Make sure the content is interesting. And actually, don't get fancy with it. If you cannot deliver a presentation well using PowerPoint, don't try augment it using Prezi. Right? Your presentation should be good enough to, to, to handle on a linear sequencing engine that goes from image to image to text to slide to slide with no transitions, with nothing fancy. Once you have that perfectly dialed in, then you can level it up with, with extra effects. And that's all that Prezi is. It's an effects engine. It takes linear content and allows you to do it in a, in a different way. Now, even with that in mind, nowadays, uh, PowerPoint, in fact, today I did a presentation via Zoom to uh, our team in Joburg, and I used the uh, Prezi-style transition for one slide where I felt it was effective, and I did it in PowerPoint, because PowerPoint can now basically do everything that Prezi can do. And the nice thing about PowerPoint is it can run perfectly with almost no help whatsoever on any computer anywhere in the world in any room. I can run it off my phone perfectly. I can run it off my laptop perfectly. It doesn't have problems with fonts and issues. And to me, it's the safest bet. Now, I want to set up myself for success as much as possible. And to me, to do that, the easiest way to do that is to use the tool that the world has. Uh, systems, fonts, where possible, all of these basic things. Now, as for the Gladwell issues, that's the issue around the tool. I believe um, that whichever tool you choose, just make sure you're good enough for the basic one before you move on. 
As for the issue of whether we should use a tool or not, a presentation, like it or not, provides does a number of jobs, or a visual aid does a number of jobs. One, it helps the speaker. So by me having PowerPoint in front of me, I can see what my next slide is. This helps me dial in my transition. So it helps me get my segue. So if I know I'm talking about point A, I can move to point B seamlessly and click and make it change and appear like magic. So it is a tool for me as a speaker, and it helps me stay on point. Now, anyone who tells you, oh, but you shouldn't need that, you should just remember every single word of what you're saying, is being silly. Why would you want to do that cognitive heavy lifting? That means it's something that you have to be thinking about as an active process in your brain during your presentation. I don't have to think about that. I can just engage. I mean, it would add to your anxiety as well as a presenter if you knew you still had to memorize everything, I would think. Completely. And you will forget something and you will babble at other bits. Right? The other thing about my presentation is I always know where my halfway mark is. So when I can see my, I can see the speaker clock is I'm at, you know, I've, I've been speaking for 55% of my time, but I've just hit my 50% slide. I all of a sudden know, shit, I've been babbling. I've got to pick up my game and, and move on. Now, the next thing it does, though, is it helps your audience. You see, and it helps us in a couple of ways. Your audience has diminishing attention. So you capture their attention and then it fades away while you're speaking. Now, you got to capture that again. And bizarrely, something that you can do to do that is to change the stage state. By changing how the screens look, it will capture everybody's attention. Even if you were just changing from an orange slide to a red slide to a blue slide. When you change the slide, it's like a, a big, it's like the lights flashing and everybody looks up and then you've captured them again. Now, where I like it though, is I can try and open, fill their gas tank, their give a shit tank with a new slide. By creating a visual, by putting a visual on a, on, a, on, a, on a screen that doesn't make sense yet, I have turned on some curiosity in my audience. They now want to solve for that image. Then, as I explain, they're trying to reconcile what they see on the screen with what I'm saying. For me, the perfect slide is the slide that makes sense at the end of its life. So when I finish my talk, they're like, oh, now I understand why you got a picture of a peanut butter. A, a peanut butter jar when you're talking about a uh, you know why to tell a story and it wouldn't have made sense at the beginning but it makes sense at the end your audience is trying to figure that out and that's actually very very good for them remembering but if nothing else it just keeps them on point and the example the final example i'll say on this is the example with malcolm gladwell now malcolm gladwell is my favorite speaker but gladwell stands up and he doesn't use any slides and everyone is always very impressed with them but what they realize is that, and I say to them, fine, don't use any slides, but then you've got to do it Gladwell's way because Gladwell is a professional writer and what he always has is paper in his hand. And so Gladwell has written his entire speech out in words before he gets onto the stage. If you're willing to type out all the words and do all of those things and refer to those notes, then you can, then you can try the Gladwell method. He also uses his voice modulation perfectly to win back an audience in the middle of a talk. If you're as good as him, you can do that. However, even then, he asked his audience to do too much. I was sharing a stage with him a few years ago, and in the talk he delivered, uh, he was talking about a battlefield, and he was trying to explain how that battlefield was set up. And he had to do a lot of hand gestures. And if you can imagine how difficult this is, even for your listeners to hear now, Gladwell was doing hand gestures and he was trying to talk about how he would, the battlefield, the guys at the top right were behind a ridge, but at the bottom left, there was actually a gap between these two farmhouses. Now over to the right was a river, but there was a small brook crossing that river. And what this meant is there was a slight 
increase in height. Now you're trying to draw this picture in your head and then hold it there. It's called representational holding. It's one of the biggest cognitive demands we have. I'm saying that if Gladwell turned around and just for that second, turned around and said, guys, um, just for now, I want to show you how this battlefield was laid out. So this makes sense to you and flashed up that image and then described it to you. Then you get to see it. And then he can go back to a black screen and carry on his presentation. But because he's decided no slides ever are how he presents, he is now not helping his audience where they need help. And I believe that it was a massive loss by almost everybody in the room that day. Okay. Uh, so to summarize what you've just said, it's more about your presentation than PowerPoint versus Prezi, right? Totally. You are your presentation. Those are just the visual aids that help you. But would you say, though, um, the demographic matters? So when I, let's say, I, I, I like to present, if when I present to people in their 20s, Generation Z, I like to use Prezi because I feel like I need to impress them a little bit more. Is that stupid thinking? I guarantee you I can impress people more with PowerPoint than you can with Prezi. No, I don't doubt that. Like I think, but, I think PowerPoint in every single way. And again, this is in my experience as a presentation specialist. I think that yeah. PowerPoint is a far more impressive tool than Prezi. I think it can do everything Prezi can do and more. Prezi is a one-trick pony. It does zooms and fades, but I don't think the demographic matters. In fact, I think if you're speaking to younger people with a smaller attention span that are more dialed in, uh, or uh, and I don't actually think that's true. Right? Human human beings are just human beings. Uh, this generation theory I have um, massive problems with. A 20-year-old today has the same stuff going on in their head as a 20-year-old. They're protesting and they're marching and doing things as 20-year-olds 20 years ago and 20 years before that and 20 years before that. They all believe that they've got the answer. They all believe the older generation was wrong. This is History repeats itself in this regard. I believe that if you're standing up and presenting, now how do you prepare for that? Because your demographic, you're like, well, I'm going to change this now because... Be because they're young, they want to be impressed by tools. I, I don't get that at all. In my mind, I'm going to present the best version of how I can present at any given time. I'm going to make sure the tool is right for that at that time. And I'm going to stand and deliver whether they're 70 or whether they're 20. I might change the way I present certain concepts and certain case studies I deliver, but I certainly wouldn't be worried about changing which slide sequencing engine I use to impress them. I would always want to impress them with my words and my delivery, not the tool behind me. Okay. Okay. That's really good to know. As a professional presenter, have you ever had a crowd not react the way you expected or hoped they would? So failure essentially. time. Oh, <laughs> I did not expect it. So failure to connect with a crowd. And so how would our listeners, anyone who's presenting and the crowd is not responding, responding, how do you manage that? Because don't you start like <laughs> sweating a lot and starting to stress a little bit? Well, it's not that the crowd isn't responding. It's that the crowd isn't responding the way that you hoped they would respond. So, yeah, exactly that. So that's what's happening. So then what you have to realize, sometimes your room is different. Now, we're all capable of doing that with people. If you were sitting and speaking to a group of people and they were feeling, you know, and you tried to make a joke to make light to the situation, let's say something had happened. If you've probably been in a room where you thought, sure, this room needs a little bit of a lift. And you try and make a joke to make light of the situation, but the joke doesn't land. Now, the one thing to do is to stop and not say anything else. But what most of us do is we try to change our tact. So we try to say, okay, the humor didn't work. Let me try to tell a story. And then I might go into a more emotional story and, and tell that. And then try to get people to resonate there. You see, 
I think I always say to people, you got to start by trying to get the audience to where you're at. But at some point, you got to kind of read what they want and change there. Now, I've not found any of my content yet that can't be delivered in a fun way or if the audience isn't in the mood to laugh, cannot be delivered in a slightly more serious way just by changing my tone. So I could be delivering a light presentation, having fun with them, laughing, joking, doing all of these things. And then I realize, wow, this isn't landing. They don't want to be spoken at like this. And then I can change my tone. And I can say, guys, I understand that this might not be what you want to hear. I understand that you may not want to laugh and you may not want to think this is a funny situation. But the truth of the matter is we have to move forward, right? Our feelings in this. Do you acknowledge the discomfort? Absolutely. Acknowledge the discomfort if you want to, if you want to feel comfortable, that's going to give you space, but move on to where they are and then try and win them back. But don't get frustrated. Don't get, you know, because you, you can't really change them. What I do see sometimes is people triple down on the jokes. So they make a joke and it doesn't land and then they try and make another joke and it doesn't land. And actually every single one gets harder to land. So I just kind of change my track. But it, my, or my tag to my approach. The truth is, though, there's sometimes where it just doesn't work. There's some talks where I come home and I say to my wife, yeah, I just didn't, just didn't feel like it landed today. And you know what the funny thing is? You, you come home from those talks and you're like, oh, this didn't land today. I didn't, didn't work out. I'm so bummed. And then like the next day, somebody emails you and say, Richard, sorry, I was in the audience of your presentation yesterday and I just want to say how thankful I am. And, and I'm like, what? Were we in the same room? But people yes. want different things from you. It's happened to you. In public speaking, it's happened to you. Yes, I had it in Dubai. I thought this was the worst presentation I've ever done. And the next day, the people, okay, it was a paid one. They emailed me and they asked me to come back. And I was like, what? (laughs) How is this even possible? Yeah. Right, because you know what you, it's like preparing a meal for somebody. You've prepared a meal three times at home and you know how you want it to taste. And then you pair it one day and it doesn't taste exactly the same way. But everybody else still says it's delicious. And you realize that they don't come in with a preconceived notion of the flavor of your presentation. So what you can, what often will happen is you think, oh, sure, but I didn't deliver this presentation in my usual flavor. But actually, understand that the flavor which they received it may still be delicious to them. Okay, fantastic. Um, finally, because we're running out of time, who do you recommend to watch live or on YouTube to learn how to improve public speaking, aside from yourself? So, <laughs> no, well, I just recommend you watch people. And here, but here's it's not about who I recommend, it's how I recommend you watch speakers. Watch okay. every speaker. My kind of pro tip to anybody, and when I'm coaching people, I tell them to do this. My pro tip to anybody is watch every single talk as if they've hired you to coach them, right? So, you take out a piece of paper before you watch a talk. And you sit there and you write as if this person was going to jump on a call with you straight after the talk and ask you for some feedback. What did I do well? What did you enjoy? Did you like how I interacted with the audience? Did you like how I moved around? Did you like how I paused? Did you like my slides? What didn't work? Did you like how I built to the ending? Come up with your criteria for critting a presentation and watch lots of them. If you've got to do some talks in the future, coach a bunch of speakers, even to the point of writing out your feedback as a blog post. I promise you the amount of time that I've shared a clip of somebody speaking or I've critiqued somebody presenting and said something to them that literally as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh my goodness, I never, I never thought of that before. And then the next time on my stage, I actually deliver that way. The amount of times that's happening happened is staggering. So don't watch one person because if you watch just one person, you're going to try and replicate that one person's style. Watch many people. See like, oh, for example, Gladwell is amazing. He doesn't use slides. 
then I shouldn't choose slides. But then watch five other people who do. Uh, and then you're like, wow, that is incredible. One of my favorite talks ever was a guy by Ite, called Ite Talgam, and he spoke at a conference called Picnic. He's also done a TED version, which is shorter, but I preferred the long-form one. And basically, his visual aids were videos of conductors conducting. And his use of video, music, and timing made for a conductor, the, the, the conductor of the Tel Aviv Philharmonic, deliver probably the best management presentation I've, never, I've ever seen. But he did it with a way that I'd never thought of trying myself. So I did after that. So the, the answer to the question is it doesn't matter who you watch. It matters how you watch. Watch with the mindset of a coach and a learner. Okay, that's really good advice. Richard, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time for this. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having, having me. I hope I didn't babble too much and added some value. Very informative. Thank you very much. Awesome.